0: Well, good morning. Uh, as you know, um, today in the overarching scheme, the redemptive history, the f- this is the first Sunday or the first day of the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. We call this day Palm Sunday. It was a real day, a day in history in 33 AD when Jesus entered. Jerusalem publicly for the last time. And he did it in a way that was very consciously fulfilling what the prophecy of Zechariah 9-9 has to say. He sends two of his disciples to get the young donkey to ride in on, and his disciples along with those Galilean pilgrims that were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festivities, they began to do something. They began to wave and spread palm branches on the ground and put their cloaks down on the ground as Jesus was riding into town. It was the gospel writer Matthew who tells us plainly in Matthew 21, four through five, he says, this took place. In other words, Jesus coming in the way he did into Jerusalem took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So on this Sunday, one of the most important days on Jesus's journey to the cross, let's push pause, which what we're doing today, pushing pause on our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew so we can go back some 500 years before Jesus arrived and see how God was doing a work, how he was inspiring Zechariah to foretell of the significance and the importance of Jesus' coming and what that means. So if you've never read the Old Testament book of Zechariah, let me just give you a glimpse of what you will find there. There are eight visions. Two sermons and two oracles. And this morning, we will be zeroing in on the first oracle, or at least part of it, uh, the beginning of chapter 9. Now, these two oracles, they're significant because they do something. They highlight and point to the one who would come, this, this divine shepherd king who will rescue his people, but by the end, both of these oracles show that this king, this one who is coming, is going to be rejected. Chapter 11, verse 8. But not only that, it gets far worse for this king. It says that he will be pierced and struck in chapter 12 and 13. All of this implying that this one who is coming, this deliverer, is going to die. You see, friends, the the one that was promised, the coming one to rescue and to deliver, he is coming to die. And that's what this week is celebrating. Church has called it Holy Week. We're celebrating Jesus' journey to the cross and nothing can stop him. He is resolute on making it to the end, to drinking the cup of wrath that God has prepared for him. But Zechariah, he's painting this picture, not only of Jesus coming, not only of his death, but he's painting a picture of a coming day when the whole world will be at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. Now, if you've been familiar with the Bible, you've heard this, you know that the Bible says God created us to acknowledge his rule and to live our lives under His authority. And we also know that God has promised to judge us for how we have responded to his rule. In other words, friends, you and I will be held accountable to God. When we die or when the world ends, our Maker will become our judge, and no opposition to him or denying of his existence can prevent this day of judgment from coming. Listen to uh, Acts chapter 17 when it declares that God has fixed a day. In other words, God has this permanently written in his calendar. We don't know when that day is, but he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, a shepherd king, the one that's being foretold of here in the book of Zechariah. Paul, writing to the Philippians, also talks about this day. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, And on that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee. Not just the ones that believe in him. Not just the ones that have trusted him. But each and every one of us, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let me ask, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And let me unpack this a little bit by giving a personal illustration. So one of the greatest uh, joys or sets of moments, if you were, that I've experienced as a dad is the expectation and the waiting and the pure joy my kids expressed as I would come home from work. Maybe you've experienced that too. At times, my kids would be smush-faced up against the glass door, waiting for me to come. And then some days, uh, even when they're more excited, they'd be sitting on the curb, and my wife would be saying, uh, would you please hurry up? The kids have been sitting outside for the last 30 minutes. And, uh, and then they finally see my truck down the, down the road, even a block away, and they begin jumping up and down with excitement. And, and as parents, you know, these are wonderful moments as you come home and your kids are excited to see you, but you also know that there's days when there's the opposite effect, right? Uh, although these have been true for our family, maybe not as many, but there is no waiting, there's no joy, there's probably hiding and maybe some tears, but definitely no excitement when dad comes home or when mom would come home. This usually is because they have done something wrong and they'd have to admit it or talk about it or say something and maybe there was going to be consequences that they didn't want to have to face. So there was no joy. Now, if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn in your copies of Scripture to Zechariah chapter 9. And here, what we'll see is how like children, I think, we will either be joyful or we will be terrified when the king comes. We will either be joyful, or we will be terrified when the king comes. Let's look at verse 9. And here, in one of the most significant messianic passages in Scripture, the first little bit, the first couple verses, sets the tone of the whole message. Notice it begins with, three commands. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, Zechariah is, yes, repeating himself. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. He is adding emphasis. In other words, kids, it's like a teacher who says, hey, pay attention. This is going to be on the test. Zechariah is doing this same thing. He's he's adding emphasis. He says, don't miss this. It's that important. And then he continues with another command. Behold, your king is coming to you. So he gives three commands. He says, rejoice. He says, shout. And he says, behold. Or in other words, fix your gaze. Behold is opposite of, of a glance. A glance as you stare, and then you look back. A gaze is a long, lingering look down the road, seeing who's coming. I can see him. I'm, I'm looking. I'm fixing my eyes on. I'm gazing. So he says, "Rejoice, shout, and behold, your king is coming to you." Now, church, this doesn't sound like a ho hum kind of a message, does it? Not one without emotion. I don't think this is describing the typical modern-day worship service. There's nothing routine or mundane about Zechariah calling the people of Zion, the offspring of the holy city. No, he says, get to shouting. Where's the joy? Let there be rejoicing in your midst. And not only that, but let there be great rejoicing. Now, I'm not saying that here we need to be getting wild and crazy, right? Right? We are supposed to have orderly worship. However, I think the point that we need to get a hold of is that God's goal for you, that God's goal for us, or let me say it in that popular Christian verse that we like to put on mugs and t-shirts, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. His great and eternal plan for you and for me, for his people, the church, is for them to be filled with unending joy to be happy, to rejoice in our salvation, as the scripture says. So God's plan for your life right now and for your life to, be, to come, beyond all the misery and all the pain and all the confusion and sin of this broken world, His plan for you is joy. That's why Jesus came, at least That's how the author of Hebrews captures it when he says in chapter 12, verse 2, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And because you and I, we are bent on believing a lie instead of the truth, we need to know and be reminded often that Jesus lived and he died for your joy, for your great joy. Now let me ask, can you imagine, how would your life be different if this was your posture? If you knew that God had sent his one and only son so that you could be filled with joy, what would your life look like? How would your job be different? How would our marriages be different? What about our parenting? What would that look like? What would it look like to gather together on Sundays? What would our singing be like? What would our scattering be like and our outreach look like to our neighbors and to the nation around us if it was filled with joy? Can you imagine people in Enid saying, man, what in the world has gotten into them over at Crosspoint? They, they just can't stop rejoicing. And I know they're not rejoicing about the current market or the state of our country, They can't really be rejoicing about how good they look because we know some of them and they're a mess, right? What in the world are they so happy about? Why are they filled with great joy? Why are they shouting and singing and praising the Lord? I wonder what it would take to cause you to rejoice with great shouts of joy. Are you thinking, well, if I had a different job, Right? Maybe I would shout with great joy, want better pay. Students, maybe there was something, someone special that you like in class and you would be shouting great shouts of joy if they just liked you back, right? What about no health problems? What about different circumstances? Is that what's going to cause you to be shouting with joy today? What about when we gather together here at Crosspoint? Would it be different music that makes you shout better? Would it be different preaching? More technology? Better Sunday school options? More elaborate in youth and children's programs? What will make the people of God rejoice greatly, shout aloud and behold? Like we're commanded to in Scripture. Maybe I should say it like this. What will God do? Or what has he done to make his people rejoice? Charles Spurgeon once said, Whenever God would have his people especially glad, it is always in himself. The rest of our passage this morning shows us just that. Let's look at verse 9, picking back up there. We make the connection that what makes the daughter of Jerusalem happy and makes her rejoice is that her king is coming to her. That her king is coming to her. And by saying that, it surely implies that the king is the one who makes his people happy. So when we think about this king, indeed, when we think about our king, we need to be reminded of what kind of king makes his people shout for joy. What kind of king Makes children sing Hosanna, and old men dream dreams, and slave girls prophesy. What kind of king makes the blind to see, and the lame to walk, and the deaf to hear? What kind of king cleanses lepers? Don't you think that's the question? From our text, if we're to rejoice and to be glad that the king is coming, the natural uh, question that you should be asking, that I'm asking is, well, what kind of king can do that? What kind of king makes people rejoice and shout and stare at him and gaze at him? Consider with me and turn your attention to the fulfillment of this prophecy. and We fix our gaze on Jesus Christ and why he came and why his kingship is such good news for us. The next line gives us two reasons, two reasons why it is good news that the shepherd king, Jesus, came. Look at verse 9. It says, the king is coming to her and it says, righteous and having salvation is he. Righteous and having salvation is he. The first reason is that the king is righteous. Another way to say that is that the king is just. The word here implies um, successfully standing up for what is right. As in, being on the side of those who are innocent and faithful. Like a, like, a, like a good judge. This is exactly what Jesus taught, is it not? When you were studying through Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or in other words, you could say, Blessed are those who are per- persecuted for the king's sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the king is coming from heaven and he will make those happy whom the world has cursed because they stood for the righteousness of God. So the first way that the coming of the king is good news and makes his people shout with joy is that he is righteous and he is not wicked. And there is no sin in him, no darkness at all. He is the true light that has come into the world and he fulfills the righteous standard of God's law. Now we get a little glimpse at this righteousness uh, if we would just look back one or two pages to Zechariah chapter three. Turn there with me. Zechariah chapter three, in the first couple verses, we we see this vision that he gets. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So right there, just picture for a moment being in a courtroom. And there you've got the the angel of the Lord, or we've got Yahweh standing there. And on his right hand, he's got an accuser. Somebody who is pointing the finger and judgment and saying, they can't be in here. This is not a place for them. And it says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, and then notice it says how he was standing there, what his uh, posture was, what his demeanor, what his other words, what his heart looked like. It says that he was standing there in filthy garments, clothed in yuck and clothed in evil, clothed in stain, and he can't get them clean. Surely the high priest, if he knew he was going to go stand before the king, that he would clean his clothes before he came, he would dress up today. But instead he comes and he is in filthy garments. This is why Satan was trying to accuse him. He can't be in the presence of the Lord. He's too evil. He's too bad. You need to get out of here, Satan would say. But notice what happens next. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And behold, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity Your sin away from you, and I will clothe you in what? Pure vestments. I will give you clean clothes. I will give you a a righteousness, if you were. Man, do we need righteousness. You see, God demands it from you and from me. And our biggest problem is that we don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves, and before him we stand in filthy, dirty clothes. And the good news of the king coming is that he has pure vestments. He has the righteousness that we need. And in his coming, the grace of God, God gives to us, as Piper says, the righteousness that he demands from us you know that God is saying to you, to me, the scriptures are declaring that to be in his presence, you must be righteous and that you don't have any righteousness. You have nothing to be able to stand before the king with. You might have some good deeds and some acts, but your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees. So how are we going to stand before the king and along comes this deliverer? This king, righteous and having salvation is he, ready to give us the pure vestments that he has. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, Jesus the king, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The second reason that we see that Jesus is coming is good news. What kind of king he is. Notice that it says the king saves. It says, Having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we who are in Christ have great reason to shout aloud and to rejoice because the king is literally the word it means endowed with salvation. Then in verse 9 we see here it continues to tell us what this saving work looked like looks like when it says the king is not coming mainly as a strong warrior but as a gentle peacemaker. gentle peacemaker Now, we should be sure that our king is strong. He is strong, but not in the same sense of being bossy or hard or loud or fierce or cruel. That's that's the point. When we read, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, the king that makes his people happy is gentle and lowly in heart. He is humble. You see, in the ancient Near East, A king who was coming in on a donkey would be coming basically saying, I'm bringing peace. Instead of coming in on a war horse saying, I'm about to conquer. This is exactly what verse 10 tells us. What the donkey stands for then is that this king coming to bring salvation is not only a humble man... But his aim in saving is to bring peace. Therefore, he is a peacemaker. And this stands in contrast to the pride and destruction of Alexander the Great King. When Israel's king comes in humility and gentleness, he brings salvation and peace. But that's not what the people wanted. That's why just in a few days from now, they will yell, crucify him, crucify him. As he's coming in, writing Israel what they wanted, at least when Jesus came into town, they wanted him to be a warrior. They wanted him to overthrow the Roman oppression, to to establish an, an earthly kingdom. And so in the fulfillment of this prophecy, we see in Luke 19, 41, right after the entry into Jerusalem, on the donkey, it says, and when Jesus drew near, to the, drew near and saw the city, it says that He wept over it. Why was Jesus weeping over this city? He looked at the city, He wept over it, and He said, would they even today that they would know the things that make for peace? They wanted this warrior king to come and conquer and Jesus said that's not going to make ultimate peace. That's not going to give forever peace. You see the Jewish people, they wanted peace, but they didn't know what they really they didn't know what that really meant. Maybe that's you too. Perhaps today you are looking for peace. Perhaps today you are looking for rest and you are looking for your burdens to be lifted. Let me ask you, what is it that you are looking for to bring you peace? Perhaps some of you today are looking for substance to do that, drugs or alcohol. Maybe some of you are looking for financial security to bring you peace so that you can retire well. Maybe some of you are looking to your spouse to bring you peace and rest. Others of you are looking to other kinds of relationships in life to bring you peace. I think the point of our text here is this morning, don't miss the coming King. Look to Jesus. He is the peacemaker. Riding on a donkey, He says to you and me, I am meek and lowly in heart. In other words, I am approachable. You can come to me. I will give you the true rest that you are after. He says, I'm not against you. I am for you. I did not come to condemn you. I came on behalf of God, my Father in heaven, to to make a reconciliation between your relationship with him, to give you a second chance, and to make peace between you and your maker. How does Jesus bring peace then? How is it that he brings peace? Peace. It says in verse 10 that it's not only to Jerusalem. It says that he shall speak peace to the nations. That is, all types of peoples in every race and tribe and tongue. No matter who you are or what life you've walked, Jesus brings in himself a peace offering to God. And we get a glimpse of that if we look at verse 11, what this peace offering is when it says, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Take note of that word, blood. Because of the blood of my covenant with you. But if we wanted a more straightforward answer, we would turn to Colossians chapter 1. Look there with me. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 19 and 20. Listen to... What it says, it says, for in him, this is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, this is how he does it, how he brings peace, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. And Jesus is bringing peace through death. Through the blood of His cross. So how do sinful people who desperately need to be at peace with God, who have no righteousness of their own, how do they find peace and hope? And how can they rejoice and shout with songs of joy? It's only by the blood. It's only through the death of the King. And friends, this is why Jesus came the first time. He came to bring peace by dying in the place of all those who would trust in Him. This is the only way for there to be peace between God and sinners. Peace in heaven and peace right now on earth between one another and everyone. This is God's promise who is a man who is righteous, a man who is sinless and not separated from God to take the place of sinners and die as their substitute. This is exactly why Jesus came riding on a donkey into Jerusalem so long ago. This is God's eternal plan of redemption. His way to make you and I happy in Him and cause us to rejoice and shout, This is his plan. Guess what it cost him? It cost him the death of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And is it worth it? God says, yes, it is. And this is how you know I love you, that I would do whatever is necessary to rescue you. Look at verse 11. It says, it gives this powerful word picture of Christ's rescuing work. It says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Point here, the blood of the covenant not only points us back to Abraham and Moses and God's covenant there, both of those that were confirmed with the blood of bulls and goats, A continual sacrifice, but it also, it points us forward to a a new promise. A promise of a new covenant in Jesus' blood. The final sacrifice, as the writer of Hebrews says, the Lamb of God, who friends, in just five days will carry the cross that we deserve to be slain for us and in our place. The promise that we want to cling to today and gaze at and behold is that because of this price paid by Jesus' blood, prisoners will be released from the waterless pit? I want to illustrate that with a parable of the pit I once heard. So there's a man. He suddenly falls into a deep pit, so deep, and the walls so high that it's impossible for him to climb out or to jump out, and he is stuck there with no way to. To free himself. You can imagine being in a pit. No joy. No hope. No rejoicing. The question is. How will he get out. Of the pit. Well. People began to pass by. First you have a religious person. A self-righteous man. Who walks by. And he looks down at him in the pit. And he says. Man. Only bad people fall into pits. You must be really bad person to fall in the pit like that. And the man is still in the pit. Oh, then a philosopher passes by and says, you're not really in a pit, you just think you are. The man is still in the pit. Well, then a politician passes by and says, I've got a new program that I'm proposing, and it's going to eliminate pitfalls just like yours. However, the man is still in the pit. You know, the county inspector comes by next, and he says, "Uh, do you have a permit for that pit? But the man is still in the pit. Next, the pessimist comes by and says, you're never going to get out of that pit, and it looks like it's going to start raining. And man is, what? What? Still in the pit. An optimist passes by and says, so, you fell in the pit, huh? Why don't you make the most of it? Try decorating it or something. But the man is still in the pit. A preacher passes by and says, I want you to notice three things about that pit. It's deep, it's dark, and it's dirty. But the man is still in the pit. A psychologist walks by and says, maybe your mother pushed you into the pit. (laughs) Now, how does being in that pit make you feel? And the man, friends, is still in the pit. A self-pitying person passes by and says, you think you're in a pit? You ought to see my pit. But the man is still in the pit. He can't get out. But then, behold, the king is coming. And the man looks up from his pit of despair, and he sees the promised Messiah, the deliverer king, Jesus. And Jesus reaches down, and he takes the man by the hand, and he lifts him out. Brothers and sisters, in the faith, Christians, let's take no pride in the fact that we believe. Let's take no pride in the fact that we got ourselves out of the pit. For it is God who sends the King to us. And it is God who has saved us. It is God who is currently saving us and who will one day finally save us when He eradicates sin from our lives. He will completely save us. So let's not take any pride in the fact that we've done something so special to get out of the pit as we close let me ask you when you think about where you were being in a waterless pit when you think about the commands to rejoice and to shout and to gaze at what god has done for you in christ are you missing out on joy Are you missing out on joy because you have forgotten that your king has come to you and that he is coming again? Have you forgotten? If you have, which I could say all of us have, we need to be reminded to renew our hearts and our minds today to rejoice and shout in all that God has done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we need His rescuing, saving, delivering grace, not just once, but again and again and again in our daily lives. He will rescue you once. Let me clarify. He has rescued you. But on a daily basis, we often say in the midst of life, does someone love me? Does someone see me? Is someone strong enough to get me out of this pit of despair? So my exhortation to you is to remember the gospel, the good news that makes for rejoicing, that Jesus answers our question with a loud and resounding, yes, here I am. I'm going to the cross for you, and I am coming again. For those of you that are with us today that are not Christians, those that would say you know he's fine and all but I'll get out of the pit on my own thank you very much those of you that are not relying on Jesus's righteousness his death and his resurrection to secure for you a not guilty verdict on this day then make no mistake about it friend Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah in his first coming as we saw this morning and He will fulfill another prophecy of Scripture in Revelation 19, in His second coming. And in His second coming, it says that, there is no, that on this day there is no pardon and forgiveness, and there's no patience. He's coming on a war horse. He's coming to conquer. But friends, right now, Jesus is riding on a donkey. Not yet a war horse. Coming to judge And make war with a rod of iron. He is still ready to save all those who will receive him as their savior. And treasure him as king. So I want to invite you today. If you don't know Christ. You've never trusted in him. Which means to turn away from your sin. And all the lying promises. And substitutes. And false idols that we look to. That you're looking to. To find joy, peace, and salvation I want to say, look at Jesus. Behold, your king has come to you. Put your salvation, put your trust in him, and he will save you. Today, the king is coming to you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, all the words that we've discussed and heard today from Scripture... Father, we ask that you would bear fruit in them or that you would take them, that you would cause us to to see and behold what kind of king goes to the cross for people, what kind of king lifts people up out of the waterless pit. And Lord, would you turn our sorrow into rejoicing. Would you cause our minds to be filled with the glory of all that you are for us in your son so that we would shout and rejoice greatly and that we would never take our gaze off of our Savior. Lord, draw us to yourself. Draw those who don't know you. Help them to see Jesus as the king that they need. We ask and we pray In the precious name of Jesus. Everyone said,